Hey everybody, it's Doug Birch and you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. So here's a phrase for you. Church sex scandal. Well, what's your response when you hear those words? Is this why you left the church? You think of Me Too, Church Too? You think of forgiveness and reconciliation? You think of prosecution, judges, juries? How do we handle this very important issue? On today's show, we're going to go deep and serious when talking about the issue of church sex scandals on The Fairly Spiritual Show. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken. dreams with you now don't you just wish we could spend every day just talking about how good jesus is and how great life is but the reality is there's a lot of darkness in this world and i believe uh that god allows humans free will that we have the ability to choose good or to choose evil uh that god has made humans wonderfully powerful that we have volition volition choice we can choose to use this powerful being us, being powerfully created beings to carry out God's purposes or to do our own thing. And because of that, there's tremendous evil in the world. I don't believe that God desires for humans to do evil. I don't believe that he is the author of evil and that he wants evil to happen. So my theology does not include that reality, but I do believe God is love. And for there to be love, humans need the ability to choose. And so we've been given the ability to choose God or to choose to go our own way. And because we can go our own way, there's tremendous evil in the world. And eventually, uh, we will be held accountable for that. And those who have chosen the righteousness of Christ uh, will receive their reward, and those who haven't will receive theirs. But today's show is not about that. Today's show is specifically, well, I guess it's about that, but today's show is specifically about abuse and how the church handles abuse and how the church handles Uh, sex scandals. Now, I'm going to do something that frustrates people. I'm not going to get into specific details of a very high-profile case that is going on right now in Christian culture. And why I'm not going to do that is because I'd like today's show uh, to be something that if you listen to it a year from now, five years from now, a hundred years from now, (laughs) if only a hundred years from now, that it would still be just as relevant I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm not trying to protect any names, but I just want to talk about general things. And now someone has once said that, uh, I don't know where the saying comes from, that the devil is in the details, but actually I think uh, the devil is in uh, thinking that it's all about the details. I think sometimes that's the problem. We get so caught in the details that we miss the bigger issues, that even if the details 
weren't there, there's still bigger principles that we must look at. And often in our political polarizing culture, we try to bring confusion to people through the details. And we say, it's really important that you know this little detail and that little detail instead of looking at the larger picture. So I'm going to talk in some vagaries on purpose here. I, I have uh, information. I've looked at some of the specifics of the most recent sex scandal. And I know that term is even very vague. And, and the terms I use here are not to minimize anything. When people even use those terms, there was an incident. There was an indiscretion. Even those terms uh, create a narrative, don't they? They even, terms can victimize someone. So I, I wanted to, though, talk in some general terms and some things that I've noticed as a pastor, also as someone that for five years I did a radio show on a Christian radio station where we dealt with many of these stories. Every day I would look through stories and address these issues of crises, uh, conflicts, scandals that occurred in churches. And the first thing I want to look at, I'm just going to give a, a general issue that right now what's going on, uh, there's this large church, a mega church, where uh, a revelation has come out uh, by the person who had been abused. And, and you're going to get some of my language of where I stand on this issue by how I talk about it, but uh, by this person who'd been abused of an event that occurred 20 years ago. And again, I, I might not be right on all the details, but just think in the general context, because the details are not as important as the main principle. And follow me on this, because even if I get some of the details wrong, the main principles are what matter the most. It could have occurred one year ago or 40 years ago. That's That doesn't really matter. But I'm just going to give you some general things. A mega church, and it doesn't matter if it's a mega church or if it's a church, a home group doesn't doesn't matter that 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 that's not the issue here. But a pastor of a mega church, a successful church, there's um, about 20 years ago, um, there was an, an incident. You want to say incident, but uh, a a woman who was in a youth group was abused by her youth pastor. Now, in this story, the, the big issue, depending upon how people listen to it, are the details. And the details is he was a young youth pastor. And I'm just giving you these details. And I don't know if I'm right on the age, if he was 22 or 23 or whatever, but he's, as many youth pastors are, they're often young. So he was young, 22 or 23, and she was in the youth group. I, I think she was 17 years old. Um, those are details. You could say, Doug, you're wrong. The, this, he was actually a little older, a little younger. She was a little, it, it doesn't matter. The importance is he is the youth pastor and she is in the youth group. And, and I'm just bringing this down because we need to understand these things and pastors should understand these things. And anyone who understands power dynamics should understand these things as well. And, uh, and again, this, this show will be graphic in some sense, so uh, if you're listening to this with little kids, it's probably not appropriate. Although you should always, in some way, talk with your kids about sexuality and talk with them about safety, and you need to have discussions. Don't wait for crises to occur. But I'm just letting you know that we're going to talk about, at some level, some things that are very troubling but exist in the world. And so um, in, in this setting, he gave her a ride home, or was set, said he was going to give her a ride home, and instead... Um, he uh, performed, a, 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 there was a, a sexual act that occurred. And even there, I'm, I'm being vague, and you say, Doug, you need to explain why. It doesn't really remotely matter. In fact, even if uh, there was just kissing or something, um, again, he's the youth minister, and uh, uh, she's in the youth group. I mean, it does matter as it just gets worse and worse. But that's even what, how salacious the details are, uh, the details are not as important as the main issue. 
So again, I'm not getting into the details, not because they're not important, but I want to get to a bigger issue. Now, when this happened, I guess sometime after that, there was a revelation that this happened, and the church treated it, at least the leadership treated it, like the issue of someone with a moral failing. And it looks to me that they treated it kind of like, oh, we've got two young people that are sort of close in age. You know, he's 22, she's 17. You know how people are, hormones and such, and made a mistake. He's asked, he's repented, he said he's sorry. Um, I don't know what she said or not. Right now, she's brought up that she be believes that this was abuse and that it was not resolved. And so you, you have this reality, and then 20 years later, that now this woman is brought up that this was not right. This was abuse. And I presume as you, as you grow older, as you, you, you become an adult, and when you're 17 and you're in the house with your family and, and within your church, how much voice do you have in that whole process to begin with? So she might have gone through a process and might have said things and might have followed her, her church's lead or her parents' lead. But as she's processed things in life, she's realized, I, what happened to me, that was wrong. That, the whole process was wrong. I, no, no one contended for me, or at least it seems like that's why she brought this out. Something happened to me, I was abused, and the way they handled this was not to acknowledge what had happened. Now, you look at this situation, and it's portrayed on two sides, and even people listening right now might view things two different ways. And I'm not here to come in and say, the good people view it one way and the wicked people view it another way. Uh, I, I, I think it's very dangerous when we talk about things to immediately demonize people because I, I, I have to first believe that people with their best intentions uh, are trying as best as they know how to view the world uh, and, and try to make good decisions. Now, I do believe there are manipulative people and there are power-hungry people and there are controlling people and there are people that will stand before God and God knows our hearts and he knows what we're doing. But I think there's also a lot of people who are caught caught in the mess. There's a lot of people who are just caught and, and they don't know and they're just trying to figure out what to do. And I think in situations like this, that often happens. They just don't know. They're just trying to follow other people. And especially if it's someone who's a leader or someone that they trust and someone who's spoken into their life and someone who's helped them with their marriage and helped them with their spirituality, there's a tendency to just follow, I don't even want to say blindly, but follow trustingly to assume, well, I'll, I'll just take their word for it because this person is a good person and a, a, you know, a good person wouldn't do a bad thing and, and I'm just going to see things the way they see it. Well, here, you know, again, I've given some vague details. And so now there's all this talk and, and you have the other side. So the one side sees it as kind of a, a moral indiscretion and then there was repentance and forgiveness and then things went back to normal and now this pastor has spent 20 years ministering and moved on and he's you know okay before God and she's okay and she's bringing this up now and why would she do that and and if you see how he's talking he's talking in terms of you know kind of this pastoral you know I'm sorry that you know I've still hurt her and I hope she can forgive me and it's this forgiveness language right well there's another side and again by saying sides I don't want to make it seem like there's equal weight in the reality of what's right to these sides. But there's others who say, this is not about forgiveness. This is about uh, power. It's about power dynamics, and it's about the law. And, and I want to present that, because this to me is, 
is how I would view this, and the reality of the situation, which I think many Christians don't understand. This is the, the way, the dynamic here. As a pastor, I'm in a position of power. And the details don't really matter in this sense. Once you become a youth pastor, you are in a position of power. And whatever pastoral position you're in, if you're in that position and you are ministering to someone, that is an unequal position of power. People are looking to you for spiritual advice, for spiritual guidance. Particularly in youth ministry, there's often vulnerability there because in youth ministry, often you are someone who is often trying to minister to kids who may not, not have a very good relationship with their parents. They may have a twisted view even of God from their parents. And so you're trying to get them to understand God outside of the hypocrisies of their parents. That's often what I've seen in youth ministry. They have parents who've not really been living a very good Christian life. And they're like, I don't want this Christ because my parents like Christ and look how their lives are. And you have to say, hey, regardless of how messed up your parents are, I mean, you don't just say that, but you can say, you know, regardless of how your parents are, Here's who Christ is. And so in many ways with youth ministry, you're trying to have these young men and young women just to trust God on their own and have their own identity. And so a youth pastor often will be in a role that is very parental. That's the first kind of leader that they would trust outside the home, the first parental figure. And so in that, there is all kinds of attachment where these young men and women will attach to that leader. And because of that, there's this really dangerous power dynamic. Now that's in youth ministry, but it's in any ministry. Anyone who's in a leadership position, there's a power dynamic. We're seeing this in Hollywood as well, why, why we're holding accountable uh, celebrities who've abused their power, because there's a power dynamic when someone is in a position where people admire you, where people see you. And there's a celebrity even in being a pastor. There's, there's not as much as there used to be, but there is a celebrity in that you're the wise person. You're the wise leader. You're someone I want to be like. And if somebody comes alive in Christ or, or they, they find healing or hope or comfort or, or just the concept of they find love, just the concept that they find love, you know, they're, they pour their heart out and they can receive a hug and and feel accepted, that is such a vulnerable state. Now, in that power dynamic, it is the utmost wicked thing you could do to betray that confidence and to turn that relationship into anything but a pastor relationship. If, if you at all were then to... Because there's already an attachment there where someone... You know, I, as a pastor, I've seen that where someone, you know, they love you in the best sense of the word. Like, oh, thank you for bringing life to my life. And thank you for caring about me. And thank you. And to come in at any level and to sexualize a relationship or to twist a relationship or or even if, and, and this is what happens, and we don't want to talk about this, even if there's confusion where if somebody has, this is where details don't matter. People will say, well, well, she wanted this relationship too. That is, we must understand that is, I don't know how else to say this, but that is so inappropriate even to have that logic. A pastor is in a role of power and authority. And if someone they're ministering to Begin to began to have feelings towards them. 
a, a good pastor would immediately recognize that that was something that they would never respond to because even that's probably some confusion within that person because they're just confused within the mixed emotions of being accepted or loved. This is something that you learn in counseling. Uh, counselors learn this, that sometimes as a counselor, uh, what will happen is someone will treat you like their father because their father was lousy, so they begin to treat you like their father, or their husband is lousy, so they begin to treat you like their husband, or their wife is lousy, they treat you like their wife. It's, they kind of project upon you the things they want from other people. It just happens. It's a psychological thing that happens. You're aware of that. And because you're aware of that, then you go above and beyond to make sure that you don't do anything to confuse your role and who you are and how you want to help that person. Why do I bring this up? Uh, to, to tell you as clear as I can that if you are in a leadership position and you engage, and if you want to use the term inappropriate relationship or sexual relationship, any relationship outside of a pastor relationship with the people that you are serving, that is a wicked behavior. It is not just a sexual indiscretion. It is not just an affair. You have broken the confidence of that relationship. And in many cases, you've broken the law. There's laws against that. And there's arguments in, I think, this particular case of whether he had broken the law at that time. Now there's laws in that place where literally clergy cannot do this because it's so dangerous. And again, the details don't matter. And I know people go, well, what if the other person wanted to have a relationship? It doesn't matter. That's an abuse of power because the reality is you can abuse power that way. A, a, a youth leader could, could abuse their power. That's the, We all understand that. We understand that in a cult mentality, right? A cult leader can make people like them. They can make people think they need to be with them. They can make them. That's what it was, is called grooming. You can groom someone for terrible purposes. So there are laws put in place that if you are a leader, whether you are a counselor or a pastor or a teacher in the schools, you can't do that because you're in a position of authority and the other person is in that other position vulnerable. They're in a vulnerable state. This is not about forgiveness of sins. This is about abuse of power. And so this needs to be looked at. And if you're listening right now, and this is kind of troubling you, and you're like, but, I, but you know, it's you know, different. You know, they're young, and they like it. You, I, you just have to put that down for a second and just say that doesn't matter. We have to keep integrity to these positions. For the church to have integrity, for the pastor to have integrity, for counseling to have integrity. Don't you want that for for teachers, right? You don't you don't want any do you want any scenario where a young teacher who just graduates if they fall in love with a senior? Well, it's just true love, you know. Do, well, you know, as long well, you know, it's true love. Well, what are you going to do? Or do you want to just say, "No, a teacher is in a position of power. That's not just a sexual indiscretion if a a teacher who just graduated has a sexual relationship with a high school senior." It doesn't matter their ages, doesn't matter. You, you just can't do that because we can't have that position of power where someone as a teacher is mentoring and spending time with that student. You just can't do that. That's a crime. 
And everybody should know that. We know that. A, a, a pastor should know that. And one thing why these things need to come out in the open, why I'm even ta- doing a show on this is for some reason I'm realizing people don't know that. That should be in any training for Bible schools. That should be training. But if you're licensed, that you should understand these dynamics. When you put someone into a youth pastor position, the first thing you just say, even practically, hey, there, this is not, you are not in this position at any level to at any romantic relationships. Even like when you have a single youth leader, are single, you, you have to talk to them about this issue, what this means. And, and the, if there's anything within you remotely that is in any place where some sort of romantic interest, then you you got to resign from this. We got to talk. We got to figure this out. There's, gotta, there's no way where this is going to be appropriate. But when I see the responses here, people don't understand those power dynamics. And we need to take away the details, the idea. It doesn't matter for this, this woman or any woman, and, and the, whether this happened with men as well. Like it, it, Again, if, if it was a young man, because people do that again, well, a young man should have known better. And if it's, we even do that with sexuality, we don't we? Oh, it was an older woman, a young man. And, you know, that's, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll kind of joke about that if an, a young man is seduced by an older woman. And, like, we, we have all these twisted ways of looking at things. Whoever is in the position of power is the abuser, period. It's abuse. Even if you don't want to view yourself as an abuser, even if the abuser doesn't see themselves as an abuser, it's abuse. It's not about whether that person did a bunch of good things in their life. It's not about even if it seems minimal versus other abusive behaviors. It's still abuse. It is. So we have to talk about these things. It doesn't matter if you live 30 years of your life not doing that behavior. That behavior still exists. That incident still occurred. So first, I just want to talk about that power dynamic. And this is, regardless, any incident that occurs, the first thing we need to look at, the first thing, one, I mean, legally, just one, it, that's the thing to me is the church is like, well, I'll, I'll get into this, but first, the power dynamic, who has the power or not, who's in the position of authority. Here's an example of as well. When there's an affair in a church, and people don't want to talk about this, let's even say that people aren't minors. If as a pastor... If your pastor is, let's say your pastor's married and your pastor has an affair with someone in the church, that is abuse. They're, having, they're abusing the person they're having an affair with. You'll say, what are you talking about? That was mutual. They wanted that. Doesn't matter. It's an abuse of power. Now, that person that they're having the affair with might have so much self-hate in them. It doesn't matter. Well, that woman was, you know, 30 years old that he had an affair with. She's her own person. But the fact in that position where, where that pastor would misuse his position or her position of authority to, to have an affair with someone that they were called to pastor, that is an abuse of power. It's not just a sexual indiscretion. It wouldn't matter if he divorced his wife or she divorced her her husband and they come together and they try to make it right and move on and minister somewhere else. That marriage is formed on twisted abuse. A terrible power dynamic of abuse. It's not healthy. It's twisted. Okay, that's the first one I wanted to address here. There's another issue about repentance and reconciliation because people will say this. They'll say, well, you know, people need to be forgiven. And I'm like, yes, everyone can be forgiven. I believe that. 
everyone can repent and everyone can be forgiven, but not everyone can continue to pastor. And these are separate issues. Repentance and forgiveness and the ability to keep pastoring or even uh, following the laws of the land are separate issues. If you take seriously the issues of repentance and reconciliation, then you'll surrender all control. And this is one of the things I've seen. If you truly believe that you've sinned against God and sinned against the other person, then you surrender control. Uh, in, in abusive situations, if the person believes that they have truly sinned against the other person, what they do is they surrender control. They don't demand apologies from the person. They don't demand anything. They just say, I've, I've, I repent. I, they can ask for forgiveness, but they don't demand it. And then they follow the consequences of their behavior. They follow it at every level. The consequences is I will follow every legal consequence of my behavior. I will follow every uh, role consequence. That mean, might mean if the role consequence is I can't pastor again, I won't pastor again. If the role consequence is that there's a crime that's been committed, and now I have to, I have to face the jail time for that, I will do that. I will do whatever I, I have done wrong. There's no justification. I will take the consequences for my behavior. Jesus Christ can forgive us of our sins, but we live in a system, we live with laws and rules, and we know what those laws and rules are, and we just follow through. We don't have expectations of anyone. We entrust our lives into the hands of God. If the person that they've sinned against wants to forgive them, that's between that person and God. If that person wants to say they want leniency, but again, it's not the victim's job to figure that out. It's the court's. It's the judge, it's the jury, it's the legal system. When the church tries to come in and manipulate that process, that's not our role. Those are separate things. People say, well, can't someone be forgiven? Any person can be forgiven. But, but honestly, if someone truly wants to be made right, and when I've counseled people in this situation, it's very clear, it's like, if you are truly repentant and sorry, then you have no control. You give up all control. But what I've found is people don't want to repent. And when they don't want to repent and they want to control it and they want to say, oh yeah, well, I'm sorry, but I want you to do this and I don't want to face these expectations and I don't want to face these consequences, what they're doing is just justifying the abuse. And in fact, they're just abusing again and again. That's not repentance. And if you've truly not repented and if you've truly not relinquished control, then you really can't have reconciliation, which comes to the next thing, reconciliation. People think of reconciliation as, let's just suppress reality and hang out together. That's not reconciliation. Reconciliation is first, from a biblical perspective, reconciliation is restoring ourselves to God and to one another. And to restore ourselves to God is to truly repent of our sins. So to me, reconciliation is for someone to truly repent of what they've done. And again, to truly repent of what they've done, they do what I just talked about. They give up all control. And if someone has not given up all control, then they've truly not repented before God and before man, and they cannot be reconciled. So I have not done anyone a service by suppressing things, by saying, oh, let's just pretend that wasn't a big deal, and let's just suppress that, and you just don't make a big deal out of it, and you don't make a big deal about it, and let's just not talk about it, let's just move on, and let's just forgive each other. That's not forgiveness. That's suppression. Forgiveness is true repentance before God and before man. It's true accountability. It's true justice. You can't have reconciliation before God, and you certainly can't have reconciliation between one and another. We've all seen those powerful things where someone has confessed to the crime, they've received their punishment, jail time, 
even worse, and a family member has stood up and said, I forgive you. We've even seen powerful reconciliation processes where at some level people have learned how to abide together or at least at some level speak well of each other and forgive each other. But those processes are not cheap. And they take time. And they are not led by the oppressor or the abuser controlling the situation. They are led by the grace of God and the abuser surrendering all control. You don't get to control the narrative if you've done the damage. You just don't. It might be, you know, this is the reality. If we believe in an eternal existence, we might just have to say, you know what? This side of heaven, my life's going to be hell in that sense. It's just not, people aren't going to like me. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to, I, I, you know what? I can't make this right, but I'm just going to daily repent, apologize, and yield all control and entrust my life to the hands of God. Those are the kinds of things I say to people who've, who've put themselves in a place where they've sinned against others in such ways that have harmed that person's very being. So for us as Christians, it's not our job to separate people from the legal consequences of their sin. It's our job to advocate for justice, to advocate for the reporting. If somebody reports illegal behavior, you report it. And if you don't even know it's illegal, you still report it and you let the police figure it out and the justice system figure it out. And I get it that the justice system and the police system, often that is a system that doesn't work in the favor of the abused as well. But I don't think that the church can do a better job either. So you go to the experts, but we don't try to figure it all out on ourselves. True repentance, true reconciliation. We need to truly talk about these things. Now, here's something else that I wanted to address is the way we talk about these issues. And, and this is one of my challenges is there's a lot of people who hate the church. They don't like Christians. They don't like the church. They've left the church. They're angry. They live in isolation. Uh, most of their time, they just spend looking for things that are wrong with the church, and they write about it. And the things that they say about the church are right. I mean, they find everything that's wrong with the church, every wrong story about the church, every bad story about the church, and they spend their time writing about it. But the reality is, you know, they don't love the church. They don't really love that expression. For the most part, they're doing their work based on their hurts. And so these people are hard to trust. And one of the problems I see in the ministry that they do is they often have a very binary view of faith, that they write kind of an us versus them. And because they're so angry at these abusers who are doing terrible things, that they, in order to win the argument, they write in language that is very harsh about all of them. And they put all of them in a big category. I'm not just talking about abusers, but everyone. They just put everyone in one category. And I think we need to be really careful. What is our reason or what is the purpose of talking about abuse? Because right now, let's say in this megachurch context, there are a lot of people in this megachurch who are really hurting. And they're not bad people. They don't want abuse. They don't want harm. They, they don't have wicked motives. In fact, their motives are not any less pure than my motives or your motives. And we need, need to understand that. That's, that's just wrong to say, I have pure motives than them. I think I really have to understand that. I don't have pure motives. And if I have revelation, that revelation I hope would come from God. So I'm not going to use that revelation to judge others who don't have that revelation yet. 
And many of these people, uh, you know, they're actively trying to follow and serve their leadership and they're trying to serve others and they're in this place of shock of what's going on. And if our goal is to truly bring truth to the surface and light into the darkness, then we need to make sure that we communicate in ways that doesn't belittle and demonize the people who are caught in the middle. And the danger is sometimes because people are so angry that we just attack and we just start throwing darts and just, you know, we just attack. And it's really hard for people to hear. It's hard for people to open their hearts. It's hard for them to see maybe the error in their thinking or to open their hearts to new ideas when they're just being attacked. When we belittle their whole church. When we say these terrible things about all evangelicals and all mega churches and all when we do that. I, I think that's very self-serving language. When when we say sweeping statements about all evangelicals and all all pastors and all mega churches and everything, I don't think that that helps anyone. I think that just comes out of our own hurt. I know this will offend some and they'll be mad. But if you really want to help people, then you know, research the garbage and speak against the harm and still report against the things that are wrong, but try to help the people who are trapped. And you know it doesn't help you when someone starts calling you names and belittling you and saying sweeping negative statements about you and just lumping you into the worst categories and the worst generalizations. So I think we have to be very careful. Our purpose of talking is to bring people into the light. Our purpose is to help others speak out. We want people to feel safe. We want to facilitate safe and loving environments. I realize this in Twitter. Twitter is so polarizing. It's such a binary environment. And binaries, it's just like there's two options. And so often I will write one statement and immediately people will assume who I am. When I say something like, Jesus said, love our enemies. I'll just, I'll just put a quote about Jesus saying, love our enemies. And someone will assume that by me saying, love our enemies, it means that I think we shouldn't talk about pastors having moral uh, indiscretions or that we shouldn't bring up the fact that there's terrible things in the church, that they think that loving our enemies means not strongly advocating for the truth and strongly pointing out hypocrisies in the church. That they think when I say loving our enemies, that that means that we just don't contend for justice. I think that I love my enemies by intercepting them and stopping them from sinning against me and others because them sinning against me and others is not going to help them in the present or their eternal future. So my worst enemy, love, would be to stop them. But the motivation of my heart is not that I want them to be destroyed, but I want them to stop and I want them to find Jesus. To love my enemies doesn't mean that that I want them to get away with something or I want them to hide something. 
but I want to do what Jesus told me to do. And I, you know, I don't want to do what Jesus told me to do because Jesus said, love your enemies and bless them and do good to them. And I don't want to do that. But I'm a follower of Jesus, so I have to have that before me. And so the motivation of my heart is even when I see things that I despise and disgust me, that when I stand against the acts of my enemies, when I point out the detestable things that they do, I'm still doing this from a place of love that I'm asking the Lord not only to stop them from their wickedness, but to change their hearts. This idea that somehow love and truth are incompatible, it's just a false gospel. Jesus is love and truth. He spoke against the enemies. You know, I hear this all the time, and you've heard me say this, but people will say, well, you know, Jesus turned over tables, and so sometimes you got to turn over tables. But my friends, the tables that Jesus turned over were the tables of people that he died for. Jesus was known as love. He is love. He could turn over those tables because he also sacrificed his love for those who hated him. He sacrificed his life for those who hated him. He could speak truth, and he could die for those who rejected him. And so that's my tension, that no matter how harsh or strong or passionate I speak about anything, I must go before the Lord and say, Lord, help me to love as you love. Now, for those of you listening now, if there's anything I said that was just wrong or hurtful, or please, I need your grace because I know I don't understand remotely. I'm just trying my best, and I trust you're trying your best as well. But I'm asking in any church setting that we would not overlook sin and oppression in our churches. That the moment any hint of abuse is recognized, we would take it serious. That we would report it. That we would understand that every power dynamic, if there's any power dynamic, a teacher, a leader, anyone in a position of authority, that if they have done something, even if it's supposedly mutual, it is not mutual because one person is in a position of power and there need to be consequences. And even in the book of First in, in uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus, leaders are supposed to be blameless. And not just blameless with the church, blameless with outsiders. And Paul even said, you can't be an elder in the church if you're not blameless with outsiders. And what he's saying is, you know, we have to look good to people who don't even follow Jesus. We just, we, we just can't have leaders who the world would be little. You can be a Christian, you can be forgiven, but you probably can't be a pastor if you're not blameless with outsiders. There has to be some reputation there where people can trust you. You might have to do something else. The kingdom of God has to be bigger than you. We have to take abuse seriously. We have to take these power dynamics seriously. We have to take repentance seriously. It's not just a forgiveness prayer. It's someone yielding and surrendering all control and going through the proper process of true repentance, but also true justice. We must learn to talk about that reconciliation is standing right before God at the judgment seat. And reconciliation is allowing the person that's been abused to not be controlled, but truly to walk out their healing in whatever way they need to walk it out. We need to talk about these issues in ways where we don't destroy people, but we facilitate safe environments where they can come to the truth. We must understand that truth and love work hand in hand. 
that without truth, there's no love, and without love, there's no truth. Make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. God loves you deeply. Well, that's it. You've been listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. I'm Doug Bursch. If you'd like to know more about what I do, you can go to fairlyspiritual.org. You can also read my book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. I have a chapter in the book about how to minister to those who've been sinned against. Again, you can pick that up at amazon.com. This music for the show is done by my brother, Dan Bursch. You can pick up his songs on iTunes. Make room for the Lord. I'll see you next time. Say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through. But you've spoken by your word, your Holy Spirit's leading me. dreams with you